The second reading tonight is John chapter 5. Um, it's quite a long reading because it's the whole chapter. Please do follow along. Um, it is the passage that's going to be taught this evening. So it's John chapter 5. And it's page 980 if you have a church Bible. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame and paralysed, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to pull me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, My father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does these things in the same way. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these that you, so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I assure you, Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. Because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. To those who have done good things, to the resurrection of life. But those who have done wicked things, to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is valid. You have sent messengers to John, and he has testified to the truth. I don't receive man's testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from men, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? While accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Evening, everyone. And uh, if you can keep your Bibles open at John 5, we're covering a lot tonight, so uh, we'll go hard and fast. Thanks, guys, for reading so well. I wonder whether you have heard of the seven-year itch. It's a psychological term that suggests happiness in a marriage uh, uh, disappears or declines after seven years. Guess what day Monday is? My seven-year anniversary. No itching here, though. Um, The seven-year itch has also been uh, used to refer to anything that we can get sick of. So your job, your house, your city, your bank. See, we are a nation of itches. And when it comes to Christianity, we can experience the seven-year itch. You see, you can become dissatisfied with Jesus, can't you? After a lot less than seven years. Because he doesn't fit your life, 
or he doesn't work for you and your specific needs, or there are better things on the markets, better things that bring you satisfaction. We can easily claim to be a follower of Jesus, but want Jesus to follow us. If you're a Christian here tonight, I bet uh, that probably most of us have itched, are itching, or will itch at some time. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then perhaps tonight Jesus will itch, a scratch an itch that you never even knew you had. Well, tonight Jesus makes some massive claims as he gets put on trial by his own people, the Jews. Uh, uh, Jesus heals this man and he reveals these massive truths to, to, to his people. So we're going to look at this healing quickly and then we're going to look at those truths under three headings, three big questions that Jesus puts to us. So let's get into it. Let's work hard and fast. The action in our passage, it starts there at this posh pool called Bethesda. And it's a pretty popular pool, verse 3. Verse 3 tells us there was a large number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Think North Sydney swimming pool with all the sick people from a first century city with no Medicare and no hospitals. It's hot It's dirty, it's diseased, it stinks of B.O. and sheep. You certainly wouldn't send someone here on an anniversary uh, healing retreat, a spa retreat. Now the reason this pool is so popular, verse 4 tells us uh, that every so often this kind of healing, uh, healing lottery takes place. Uh, where all the sick scramble down to the water to be first in the water for this kind of supernatural healing to take place. It doesn't tell us much more than verse 4. What it does tell us is that these people are desperate, desperate people. And the guy singled out by Jesus in verse 6, he is incredibly desperate. Forget the seven-year itch. He's been itching for 38 years. Verse 5 tells us he's not been able to walk for 38 years of his life. Imagine that. Imagine that. You'd be at your wit's end. And his life is uh, made all the more worse by the meanness of the people around him. Have a look with me at verse 6. Jesus said, do you want to to get well? Verse 7, sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Not only can the man not uh, be first in the water, he can't even get in the water. It's like David Jones in the January sales, and this man is left empty-handed every time. Because he has no one. Until Jesus strolls up to him. Verse 8. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. It's incredible, isn't it? Eight words have turned this miserable life around. It's a monumental uh, moment for this man. But it's also 
a monumental moment for the Jews. You see, this man had been waiting 38 years uh, for this day. The Jews had been waiting 470 years for this day. You see, it's a fulfillment of a promise, of a rescue made by God through the prophet Isaiah. Sammy read it out to us. Isaiah said that when the rescue is here, the lame will leap like a deer. And that's just what happens. The moment is now the rescue Moses and the Exodus was pointing to, the plagues and the Red Sea and all that stuff. The rescue, the second Exodus, the ultimate rescue is here now. The rescue that all the prophets had been banging on about for centuries. It's here now, but instead of whooping and high fives that you'd expect, all we get is the Jews in verse 10. This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mats on the Sabbath. It's horrendous, isn't it? They didn't look twice at him when he was on his mat for 38 years, but the moment he picks it up, they're onto him. And then we get the blame culture that we have in our offices in verse 11. The man says, the man who made me well, he made me do it. God's long-promised rescue is here. His rescue is here. It's a huge point in the Bible. But there's no celebration of this miracle. There is just a witch hunt. A witch hunt for the perpetrator of of the crime of inciting to mat carry on the Sabbath. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The rescue is here. Jesus, the rescue is here. And everyone is missing it. Now, there are massive consequences for missing the rescuer. I think that's what Jesus is going on about when he drops in that little hand grenade in verse 14. He says to the man after he's called him up, he says, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. But the Jews don't think there are consequences to missing him. Verse 16, they began persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible, isn't it? And in case they're just a bit slow, that they haven't quite cottoned on to it, Jesus starts to name drop. Verse 17, My father is still working, and I am working also. Jesus said, God God works on the Sabbath, and he's my dad. He's working, so I'm working. Hint, hint. But they're not slow, are they? They're vicious. Verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal to God. Uh, There's no mat carrying on the Sabbath, uh, but they don't have a problem with trying to assassinate someone on the Sabbath. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And they don't get Jesus because they don't want this Jesus. They want the Jesus who will follow them, who will fit around their rules about the Sabbath, who will fit around their way of doing life. And the thing you pick up from these verses is that this Jesus, he just won't fit. He will always 
cause an itch. So the, the Jews, they scratch that itch by plotting to kill him. They plot to kill him with the weapons of religion, of rules, and hypocrisy. It's a huge tragedy, isn't it, on the page, that you see this great moment and this horrendous reaction. But the reaction of the Jews explains so much of our itching as Christians, doesn't it? See, too often, this Jesus doesn't fit into our life, or following him doesn't necessarily deliver the dreams uh, that we want. Or joining him on his rescue mission, well, that's just too much of an inconvenience, and there's too much at risk doing that. Now, when tough times hit, and there are people here who are going through tough times, the best thing we can do is cling to this Jesus. We've heard, amazingly, how people have done that this week. But too often, in the good times, we morph Jesus into this kind of religious person, or we morph him into ritual, and we become the weekend Christian who sings, I love you, Lord who sings, I worship you at church, but then we gag him with silence and hypocrisy the rest of the week. And Jesus becomes your I, Jesus, your little spiritual gadget who you can call upon at your convenience. I think all too often, instead of following Jesus, we want Jesus to follow us, our plans, our ambitions, And our dreams. But the Jews' reaction shows us that doing that will just itch and itch and itch until it becomes unbearable and we are forced to choose to kill him or to follow him. Well, Jesus responds to the Jews' allegations with with his defense. It's a bit like a a court scene, uh, this, this scene. He, def- he responds with his defense, his witnesses, and then a charge back against him. And all of these, this court scene presents us with three big questions. And we'll look at those in turn. So the first question he responds to is, do you know why I've come? Do you know why I've come? Have a look with me at verse 21. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son of man also gives life to anyone he wants to. And verse 24, this is the big verse of the chapter. I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says to his own people, I've not come to bring trouble. I've not come to destroy your way of life. I've come to bring you life. To anyone who hears and believes my words. It's amazing, isn't it? See, this is the business that Jesus is in. The life-giving business. And it's a family business. Did you spot that? Verse 19, we get this beautiful picture of the family business that Jesus is in. He says, I assure you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does... The Son also does these things in the same way. Jesus does what the Father does in perfect harmony. This isn't a family business with 
family feuds and sibling rivalries and personal agendas. This is a beautiful, close-knit family business. And they offer life. There are many products around, aren't there, that, that offer life, that offer to make our lives better, to make us feel young, to look younger and live for longer. But the life that Jesus offers is eternal. Isn't that what Sydney yearns for? To live forever? That's why gyms, diets, yoga, Pilates, organic, detox, Botox, and lipo. That's why they're all big businesses here in Sydney. All designated to deal with the problems of aging and bodies wasting away. And pushing back the inevitable. But Jesus says, that's not the problem I've come to deal with. I haven't come to give you a facelift and a tummy tuck. Jesus says, the problem he's come to deal with is judgment. That's the problem eternal life deals with. Have a look with me at verse 24. He says, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. He says it again in verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life. But those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Now I know talking about judgment is as popular as a bikey at a North Shore ballet class. But Jesus says, this is the problem he has come to fix. We don't like to talk about judgment. It's difficult to preach about judgment, but Jesus loves to talk about it because he wants to deal with it. You see, we can ignore Jesus now. We can spend a life dodging his words, making up excuses not to follow him. This passage says a time is coming when we will respond to his call. We cannot do anything but respond to his call. And he will hold us account for our selfishness and our hate for the God who has made us. He will judge us, Jesus says. He won't ask us to plead guilty or innocent because on our own, the Bible says we're all guilty before a perfect God. And he will ask us, each and every one of us, what did you do with my words? What did you do with my offer of eternal life? Did you hear and believe? Or were you too busy? Were you too important? Were you too ambitious? We can dodge Jesus' words now. But we cannot dodge them forever. We will meet him in judgment sobering bit of this passage. And only those who are his, only those who have heard his words and believed him will stand. Incredibly sobering, isn't it? Verse 24 again. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment. It's a scary, scary thought to think that some people I know will face this judgment. Some people sat here 
some of my family, some of my closest friends. They don't know Jesus' words. They don't trust him. And they will face his judgment. We need to grasp that Jesus tells us about his judgment, not to spoil our fun, but he tells us about it so that we can be prepared to meet him. You see, that's our deepest need. We've got many needs, but our deepest need is that we would pass through this judgment. It's more important than having your legs healed after 38 years. It's more important than your postcode, than your career. It's more important than your reputation. It's incredible, isn't it? I guess there's uh, two sides of the horse that we can fall off when it comes to living in light of this judgment as Christians. On the one side, we can live as though this judgment won't happen. We can mentally scrub this part out of the Bible. Uh, we can, and we treat Jesus like a hobby or a good luck charm. And we can think that our actions in this life don't have any consequences. And so we don't care about the lost. We don't care about the people facing judgment. And we don't care if we're lost, because that's not happening. And on the other side, I guess we can, uh, we can um, live as though life starts at our funeral, can't we? Life is this miserable obstacle course that we need to get o- over before we get to the good stuff. And so we ignore the good stuff that God has given to us now. We ignore that he's given us his spirit, his word, and his people. All so that we can enjoy a relationship with him now. He's given us so much. Now when we grasp that Jesus has come to give us eternal life so that we can get through this judgment, that it is happening... Surely that will change the way we live now. Jesus' mission should become our mission. We should care that people are perishing. It should matter how we live because Jesus himself lives within us by his Spirit. We should love Christ's people. We should cherish his word. We should cherish his word because it is the word, the voice of God who says to you, I love you, keep going, know that I'm in control. You should cherish that. That's why Jesus has come. Do you know why he's come? Well, the second question that Jesus' monologue puts before us is, do you trust my credentials? Do you trust my credentials? Well, in response to the hissy fit that the Jews had, Uh, Jesus rolls out four witnesses. I wonder whether you spotted them as as Megan read the the, the passage out. Uh, So he rolls out John the Baptist, who they've they've met, verse 35. He rolls out his miracles, which they've seen, verse 36. And he rolls out God the Father, who you may have heard of, verse 37. And he rolls out the Bible, which these guys love reading, verse 39. But Jesus uh, issues this chilling warning in verse 39. Have a look with me at verse 39. He says to them, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet they testify about me and you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. See, what he's saying is all of the Bible, 
Everything that you read every day points to me, Jesus says. Noah, Abraham, Moses, even the bit about the talking donkey. It all points to Jesus. And they don't know it. No wonder they wanted to kill him. These were the experts in the Bible. Now, the fact that the Bible is all about Jesus should give us great confidence. Should give us great confidence. When we think that God doesn't care, we have solid eyewitness accounts written down for us that say he does care. A friend of mine used to challenge me to give up being a Christian. Uh, He kind of goaded me all the time. I think it's just how he thought he'd get me going. And I said to him that I would give up Jesus if he could prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, when you look at the gospel accounts, the evidence stands up. If you're here tonight and you're looking into Christianity, try going to our Christianity Explored course. It's a a great opportunity to look at all the evidence, to, to tear it apart so that you can expose Jesus as a liar if he is. You can expose him as a fraud. However, Jesus' credentials go deeper than just evidence. See, we shouldn't just treat our Bibles as a reference book, if, this is, if Jesus is saying this. You see, Jesus says that in our Bibles we find him, and in him we find this eternal life. See, God's word should scratch those itches when we're tempted to move on from Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of examples to show you how it doesn't just work uh, 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 when we die, but it also works now. Jesus has promised life to the full. So when I read verse 24, I'm not to think, oh, that's interesting. I'll buy a poster with that, with a little cheesy tree or a, a, a rainbow sunset on it and put it on my wall. It's meant to shape the way I view the world. Jesus tells me when he speaks and his people believe, they live forever. That's massive, isn't it? See, he overrides the consequences of death. He does the impossible. He overrides the consequences of every cancer, every car accident, every heart attack. That Jesus' words change your end game once for all. No more death, no more mourning, no more pain, John says in Revelation. My friend was in the coronary care unit the other day. Um, he just fainted, so talk about using a hammer to smash a walnut. Um, he, he, he was in the coronary care unit, and I went to visit him. And as I walked through, I saw all the sick men with the blippy things on their chests. And I thought to myself, that will be me one day. And I saw a bed, and I thought, that could be the bed where I die. But then I smiled because I remembered verse 24. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant. Such confidence we have. Do you see how God's word, his Bible shapes our confidence when we find Jesus there? Here's another example. I've been wrestling with a few big decisions lately. And as I've tried... uh, Uh, As I've been uh, trying to grapple with John 5, 
I've seen some new things that I've never seen about Jesus before. Mark testified to his friend who'd been doing the same. So the three things that I'd spotted in John 5 were three titles for Jesus. I wonder whether you spotted them. He says, uh, Jesus is the Son, he is the Son of Man, and he is the Son of God. All three describe three different jobs that Jesus does. You see, he is my saviour. That's the son bit. He gives life. He is my judge. That's the son of man bit. And he is the son, he is the son of God. He is my king. And so the reason, so when I spot these things in the Bible and see new things about Jesus, I know that I can make a decision based on his priorities, not mine. I can have every confidence because he is control, in control as the son of God, the, God's big king. It's incredibly liberating. This is life to the full, to know the king who is in control now and who gives us eternal life to anyone who will trust his words. Well, do you trust his credentials? Do you trust the witnesses? That's what Jesus says to us tonight. And briefly, the the final question John 5 puts before us is, do you love and accept me? Do you love and accept me? Have a look with me at uh, verse 41. I do not accept glory from men, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Jesus says to these people who are meant to be God's people, you do not love God. Therefore, you reject his rescue and you try and kill his rescuer. That's why they want Jesus dead. That's why they get in so much of uh, a crisis for uh, him inciting mat carrying. And this verdict is a huge indictment, isn't it, that these people claim to know God. But it's also incredibly challenging for us. Because Jesus says to us, do you love God? If you do, you'll love his son. Have you accepted his rescue? Huge questions, huge questions from the mouth of Jesus. I once met the most ungrateful woman in Sydney. Um, I was on my way to work, and I stopped at one of those crossings, the traffic crossings, and uh, we were all there, uh, pedestrians all lined up like lemmings, and um, as the lights changed from red to green, an ambulance from nowhere came over the hill, sirens blazing, at the same time that this woman stepped out into the road. Well, I grabbed her arm, and I genuinely saved her life. I genuinely saved her life. I didn't get a medal. And all I got from this woman was grief that I'd grabbed her arm. She just was listening to her iPod, and she put her uh, headphones back in and went on her way to work. There was no thank you or handshake, just headphones in, told me off, and went off to work. Awful, isn't it? Well, Jesus says we can be like that with him. Incredibly sobering. We can be like that with him. We can take his rescue and we can just carry on as if we'd never been rescued. 
if we have trusted, we have his word. We have every confidence that he has saved us from facing judgment. He's not given us over to what our sins deserve. And he has invited us into the most incredible relationship. It should shape our ambitions. It should shape our relationships, our spending, our decisions. Because when it does, Jesus scratches that seven-year itch like nothing else can. Jesus promises to give life. And he gives it to anyone who would trust his word. Jesus promises to uh, see us through judgment if we will trust his word. He gives us life now and eternal life when we die. Kim and I will celebrate our seven years of promise keeping on Monday. Well, how much more will Jesus keep his promise to us if we trust his word? Those who have believed his word and trusted his offer of eternal life have him. We have his promise to keep us, to love us, and to guide us from now until eternity. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's all in front of us in John chapter 5. Let me finish with verse 24 again. I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to give us life, to give us confidence in life now, and in death. Please help us to be genuine followers of Jesus. Help us to turn away from where we've wanted Jesus to follow us and have lives shaped around him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.